This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest? Are you holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Don't keep it all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the CSM Podcast with David Nickturn. Creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Blending spiritual and temporal realities, joining heaven and earth. We will be talking with a variety of manifestors, individuals who have, in one way or another, clarified their vision, created an offering, and brought that offering to the marketplace. Let's see what we can learn from them as we each move forward towards solving our own life puzzle. Facing the challenge of living in the spirit, in the body, in the world, in this time. If you're interested in supporting the CSM podcast, please visit eherenownetwork.com forward slash David. Okay, so I'm sitting here with Rani and Colleen Seidman, uh, two wonderfully, lovely looking human beings. <laughs> like if we had people coming from outer space and we wanted to present the best um, you know, impression of our species, I would probably put these two people right out in front of the crowd. And they're both, um, you know, very, very deeply experienced uh, yoga teachers and spiritual teachers and have some wonderful studios. Um, out, we're out here in um, East Hampton, Sag Harbor area, and they have a, a, a beautiful studio called Yoga Shanti in, in uh, Sag Harbor. Uh, so, and of course, they've been teaching all over the world for many, many years. Um, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you on my podcast. Bravo. Thanks, Dave. So um, I've, I've explained to Rodney and Colleen that uh, we're going to be sort of lightly referencing the, the, the book uh, that I have out called Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. And so I'm just going to kind of throw that topic out, and we're going to, Rodney's very good at freestyling, I think, and we'll just sort of see if we can pull Colleen into the conversation, and, <laughs> and ho- hopefully she'll lead us into a like sane and profound area of it. Um, so any part of that 
construction appeal to you guys, or do you have any thoughts about it? Um, one thought, just on the title, it's uh, so interesting how a lot of times the general public thinks that if you're in the, quote, spiritual profession, that you shouldn't be able to pay your rent yeah. somehow. <laughs> and that somehow it's less spiritual if it's actually your career and your livelihood. I just find that really interesting. And don't they think sometimes yoga should be free? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. It's like, and we should probably be on the street with a begging bowl. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting. And I, I think that that's changing mm. now. And people are realizing that it is a, it is a business. It is a career. It is a livelihood. And that doesn't make it any less spiritual. Yeah. Well, that's the general idea. And um, do you find that your your current audience is more tuned into that? Is, is that a sort of older paradigm that's, that has shifted somewhat? Um, yes, for the most part. But then we still get, um, you know, a little pushback. Um, we're asked to do a lot of things uh, as volunteer, which mm -hmm. is, you know, it's wonderful. But we can't spend our you know, our, all of our time and energy. Of course, it comes back to the idea of peace and really service is peace, but you can't serve from an empty plate either. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So Have you heard that slogan, no margin, no mission? I haven't heard that. That's pretty good, though. <laughs> you, could, you could throw that into the mix. So, um, the idea of creativity, uh, artistic abilities coming from a place of uh, the starving artist. Um, you know, I think the artist has to have something to say. And they also have to have a craft in which to say it. Um, when you hone a craft, whether it be music or writing or yoga, when you hone a craft or painting, uh, you have to spend a lot of time honing a craft. It just takes a long time. So that in itself, to hone a craft, being a concert pianist, for instance, it's going to take a lot of time that you're not going to actually have time spending probably doing um, uh, features and Wall Street. So, you know, there's some contradiction just in the amount of time you have to spend to create a craft. Then, to be an artist, you have to have something to say with that craft. And I think then that somehow constitutes some type of creativity. Creativity and also constitutes the question of doing something maybe that's never been done before or saying it in a way that's slightly, uh, in a way that uh, has never been said before. So in that sense, you have to dig deep. You have to, because especially in the 21st century, you know, most paintings have already been done. Most music, most sound has been played in incredibly different ways. Uh, they said, even if you're a genius today as a physicist, uh, you have to study so much physics just to come to where we're at today mm -hmm. that uh, you might have to be in your 50s before you even actually break <laughs> new ground. Is that true for yoga too? You know, yoga is very interesting. It's, it's new in this country, uh, or I should say in the West. Uh, you know, it's it's dated about, the academics are dating it about 2,500 years old. It's first mentioned in one of the Upanishads. Um, and yoga has taken on, just like any art form, it's taken on 
incredibly different life forms. So the yoga that we're doing today has very little to do with the yoga that was done, you know, in the 15th century or the 10th century or BC sometimes. So um, it's an evolving, um, living um, inquiry. So uh, depending how serious you are about it, it's like if you're a serious guitarist, Mm -hmm. Uh, serious means in in my mind that you're putting some heavy duty time into it, right. no matter how talented, even if you're a protege, mm-hmm. that you're putting some heavy duty time into this this thing. Yeah. So, does it go with making a buck? Well, maybe you know most artists actually have to have uh, people representing them because mm-hmm. they actually are spending so much time doing their craft. They actually have very little time trying to figure out how to sell the craft. Mm-hmm. So you have division of purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because you're incredible at doing something, and especially probably if you're incredible at doing something, and it's new, it's probably not sellable. <laughs> People don't understand it. That's the whole point of cracking the code. So there's some problems. We call I that the bleeding edge. Have you ever heard that the expression? The bleeding edge. There's exactly. the leading edge, but the bleeding edge is the one where like, it's out beyond the breakers and... People aren't ready yet for to, to hear about it. So I like your title, but I get a little confused because everybody has to do everything. Yeah. And it actually pisses me off. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, you have to be you have to be the most creative person on the world, then you have to be able to sell it, and then you have to be a billionaire. <laughs> I mean, like, let's give ourselves a goddamn break. <laughs> Quit swearing so much. <laughs> it like, pisses me off. <laughs> Yeah, I think Rod hit on something there. It, it does take time. You know, you can't give a five-year-old a piano and expect him or her to become a classic pianist. And sometimes the same respect isn't giving, given to meditation or breath work or mm-hmm. um, asana practice. And uh, I think it should be because there is finesse. There is subtleties that you can't get to unless you've spent 20 years on the mat really uh, exploring and digging, mm-hmm. digging deep. And a lot of times that it's begun to begins to be taught at a, a level where the teacher hasn't spent that much time refining their craft. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's uh, yeah. I, this is in the chapter mastering your craft. This is obviously mm-hmm. an essential ingredient. But Colleen, I want to ask you because you've had this studio out here for quite a while, right? Yeah, twenty years. And is it, is it your main business or main livelihood, or has it been? Yoga is my main business. As some mm-hmm. of you do or don't know, if you want to make money, do not open a yoga studio. <laughs> <laughs> there is no profit to Love be made. <laughs> um, our, our, the, the profit that we have made is really uh, training teachers mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, workshops and conferences mm-hmm. and being on the road 200 out of 365 wow. days of the year. You're hearing it from the horse's mouth here, everybody. <laughs> the yoga studio is my love. It's my mm-hmm. life. It's my community. It's what gives me the most. You talked about contentment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It brings that. It brings me joy. Um, there's also frustration and you know difficulties in that way, but it is not um, a moneymaker. And we're very successful as a yoga studio as far as the number of bodies mm-hmm. that come through the room. And I believe we have... I, I think we actually have the best yoga teachers, and Rod says, in the West, um, because we've been open for so long. Sure. The teachers have been marinating, and we bring in all these amazing teachers like yourself. Mm. 
and they have access um, to those seasoned um, teachers. Have you at times felt pulled between you know, your desire to go deeper with your own practice and it takes time and energy to, to, to run a, a, a studio and to be on the road you know, hundreds of days a year? And is there any kind of tension between those two aspects that you felt? Yes, um, but there, there are times when the well runs dry. Mm. And that's a really scary time when the inspiration has dried up and you feel like you're just going through the motions. And uh, at that point, it is time to retreat and study and get some new inspiration. Rod and I um, always take at least two weeks a year with a teacher where we can just be the student. You know, David, last night you led a meditation at Yoga Shanti. And it was really quite profound in the sense that you were helping us do a eye-open meditation with the sort of feeling that there's a continuity then when you leave the mat and go into the world. Really beautiful. When you've practiced yoga, uh, you have enough in the bank. In other words, when you've practiced a lot, a lot, a lot, you've put a lot of hours in, in whatever aspect of yoga we're talking about. Then the bleed over into your everyday life. So when Richard Rosen says something like, how often are you meditating, Richard? The answer is like, well, I'm sort of always meditating. But someone can't say that without a certain amount of in the bank. Yeah, Do you understand? Absolutely. There's a lot of people saying things like that. Sure. But they actually haven't put the blood, sweat, and tears, mm-hmm. the bleeding edge, into the bank. So it's it's only sort of lip service. We used to listen to Titnan Han speak, and he would be preceded by his young monks. And they would say exactly <laughs> his his words verbatim right. from right. his books. Sure. Titnan Han came on stage. He basically repeated what they said. Mm-hmm. Night and day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One was empty of meaning. The mm-hmm. other one was brimming over the top of the glass with feeling, meaning, intellectual content. Mm-hmm. Content is, it, it has to be there. Mm. So, so the thing is, and another thing about creativity, uh, you spend a lot of time in Japan. <coughs> I read an amazing article about um, a master of uh, actually soba sauce. And uh, <laughs> his family had been creating mm. soba and soba sauce for 300 years, so it was basically like a a 10-generation type of ordeal, right? And he was scratching his head in this video saying, creativity, what could they possibly mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> he said, I'm just trying to create more subtlety mm. in the flavor that my family's been working on for 300 years, okay? Now, he says, I know it's a beautiful thing. You guys are creating this Asian... <coughs> <coughs> this Asian Western fusion and you go to New York City and you get these super cool, like fantastically creative foods. He says, I, I you know, that's something, but it's also something to refine. Mm-hmm. So what is the creativity of refining something? And, and what does the word creative actually mean? So uh, when we throw a, a, three words out there, creativity, spirituality, and how to earn a buck, Wow. I mean, we're basically traveling the universe at that point. <laughs> well, I left out one 
important topic, and I mentioned that in the intro, which is relationships. <laughs> and I, I, I carefully mentioned that um, it's a deliberate omission on my part because I don't consider myself to have enough expertise <laughs> to talk about <laughs> it properly. But you guys could jump in there, too, because you work together, live together. You know, that's, uh, that's an amazing um, it's outside of the realm of the book deliberately because that's almost like, you know, a grand <laughs> slam of, 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 you know, manifesting uh, on so many different levels. So you can go there or not. I'll just, I'll just lay that out there. But just so everybody knows it's not, it's for the next book out. That, that'll happen. Yeah, there. relationships are, um, I guess, what life is all about, right? Mm-hmm. How you handle them, mm-hmm. uh, what you can handle, and how gracefully um, you handle what you can handle. Um, I mean, we've been doing this dance for quite a while now, I don't know, 16 years or something. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's a 24 seven game too. And it has, uh, you know, it's pluses and it's minuses, like every relationship. Hey, be careful. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're starting to, you know, refine that dance and, uh, you know, we teach together in the classroom as well. Um, on the road pretty much exclusively together. Um, and at first we laughed because we used to get mad at each other in the mm-hmm. classroom all the time because Rodney wouldn't stop talking. <laughs> and I'd be looking at my watch and I'd be going up to him with the big eyes and the, the shrug of the shoulders like, duh, dude, uh, you've said enough. Give, give me back. The classroom, we're used to being both, as uh, somebody put it, front burner people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been in the, the fashion business as a, as a model for, for years and years, and I'm used to, to that role. And, mm-hmm. you know, Rodney's been hit the videos, and he's used to being a front burner. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would clash, you know, mm-hmm. egos, hard heads. And, uh, but we're, we've got that. I don't think we've been mad at each other for a few years in that way. I mean, that still comes up where I sort of tap my watch, mm-hmm. and uh, he does the same you see why I left relationships out of the book now. <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, no, it's complicated. Um, but I can't imagine, as much as we travel, to not travel together and still maintain um, the the level of understanding yeah. within the the partnership. Are you each other's teachers? Do you, do you learn from Yeah, I would say we're definitely each other's teachers. In yoga? In, in well, I take every class he teaches if he's not teaching with me, and he takes every class that I teach, wow. literally every class. Wow. Before we got married, very uh, probably within weeks before we got married, um, somebody, I think he's from your lineage, actually, uh, came up to us and said, are you guys crazy? <laughs> and we're like, yeah, but why? And he's like, you hold up. Uh, a mirror to each other every single day. Mm-hmm. And you know how difficult that's mm. going to be to have to have that sort of accountability on an everyday basis. And we had no idea what he was talking about. And uh, now we do. Uh-huh. The mirror. The mirror. Well, you know, you have to talk about the elephant in the room because everything is relationship, period. So I, I don't actually buy you saying you're a novice at it because you have a couple of failed ones in your pocket. Which we have means, a few of those <laughs> <laughs> Which I means, think we all do. <laughs> well, and, and I have failed businesses. Exactly. And one of the things I say in this book is I'm hoping you learn from my failures and I'm saving you some time. 
Yeah, and you know, for us to even see it as failures is a odd. Well, you use the word, so I'm just. I know it's an odd thing. I did it to bait you, and you just bit it right <laughs> off the hook. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, it's incredible because really, there is nothing but relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, whether or not it's the mirror that reflects your face in the bathroom, or your spouse, or whether it's your child, or whether it's your job, or you know, basically. You're getting those teachings all the time, right? Well, and, and as teachers, we have vertical and horizontal relationships, right? So you have we have our teachers who who who, who we um, look up to in some way, I assume. We have our peers, and then we have our students, and they're all got a mirror mirror-like quality. But I'm curious about if you, if either of you would say anything about the process of being a student studying, because you mentioned that you go study for two weeks a year and try to um, increase your... We're studying with each other all the yeah. time. But I in those two weeks... Both of us, I think for both of us, it's a relief mm -hmm. to hand over the teacher seat to uh, someone that we consider our teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, and even Colleen, and she's really amazing as a studio owner to take class from her students that are teachers. Mm -hmm. And when, uh, when uh, we're in the classroom, mm -hmm. we may be critiquing them in our head, but for the most part, we're taking class. In other words, we're there as a student. The one thing, uh, having this vertical aspect of what you're talking about in teaching, you, you wear many hats, as you know. One day you're a student, one moment, and you might be teaching class and realize, oh, I'm actually the student here mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. We teach a lot of elders, actually, in the community. And, you know, it's, it's ludicrous to think that they don't have something to teach us. In fact, if you're at all just relaxed and listening, there's a lot of stuff flying around that's incredible to catch. And so, but Colleen and I, you're right, though. Colleen and I have been, um, it's sort of like radical honesty because it's reflected so fast and so hard. And it's in the context of a marriage. So... It, it, it's sort of amped up, if you will. So in that sense, um, and we're together all of the time, so it, it, it literally feeds, any little nuance feeds itself and sort of turns into maybe a possible issue, which right. is not really, you know, after a while you're like, oh, that's just fluctuations. Yeah, like, are you sneezing at me? <laughs> <laughs> really, it can get really crazy. Like Groucho right? said, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> and when I said you do two weeks, that's two weeks not uh, that's off our location mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because we're studying every single day on mm -hmm. location and we bring in all of these amazing teachers that we get to mm -hmm. study with. So um, it's not just those two weeks, it's every day. So one of the um, you know principles that I explore in the book is defining success in your own terms, not because we tend to import or I, I'm calling it externally rotate. We're looking around for some vision to come in from the outside. Do people approve of us? Are we doing well? But what's your own version of success and contentment? And, you know, uh, we're in a culture that's so intensely materialistic, right? That there's so much drive towards, you know, accumulation. So I'm wondering if you, if you have encountered a moment of just assessing your own level of uh, contentment and, and saying, we have enough, we're good. Um, and it could be at whatever level you want that to be. And it 
include what include whatever parameters you want. But is that something you contemplate, or are you just sort of going with the flow in that area? Uh, for me, it's something I struggle with very much. Uh-huh. Um, I come from a family, seven kids, and my father was a factory worker. Uh-huh. Um, so I come from sort of that poverty mentality that mm-hmm. you talk about. Mm-hmm. So not having uh, finances to pay the bills is something that I worry about. Um, even to this day? Even to this day. Right. Yeah, I mm-hmm. definitely have that. Um, mentality of uh, the fear mm-hmm. of money and of not having it mm. and not being able to provide, not being able to do all of those um, things that, that money benefits you because I watched so many years my parents struggling with which bills to pay on payday mm. because they couldn't pay them all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, our, we always had food on the table, mm-hmm. but it, but we had to watch the struggle of that. So has that made you a kind of sharp business person? I wouldn't say I'm a sharp business person, no. Um, but I work my, I guess Rod's been swearing, I work my ass off yeah. 24-7. I'm never not working, ask yeah. Rodney. It's one of the bones of contentions of our marriage. Um, I'm a workaholic. Ah, and okay. I have, you know, you might call it work ethic. Mm-hmm. But that was distilled in me since I was a child. I started working at eight years old. And how does it affect you as a boss? Because you're a boss. People work for you. Uh, they, they look at you as, their, as their, the person they're going to project all that stuff onto. And do you, do you consider yourself a compassionate boss or a tough boss or um, a softy? You know, you know it, it's sort of all of the above. They know what mm-hmm. I expect mm-hmm. from them, which is not to sub their classes out unless mm-hmm. they absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. Um, I expect for them to be there, to be on time, to be prepared to teach a well-sequenced class, to, you know, have some forethought before the class. Mm. Um, but having said that, you know, I, I think that I can do that with, um, with compassion. And anyone that comes to me, I, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely sit down and listen to. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I take things on. I internalize mm-hmm. pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. And I never want someone to go away with a bad feeling. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of like my mother in that. I a lot of times I walk away thinking, oh, I did that wrong. I did that wrong. Mm-hmm. They, I made them feel bad. I didn't want to make them feel bad. So I think I'm I'm balancing that that edge of expecting what I do from mm-hmm. other people, mm-hmm. and then um, and then feeling bad that I expect that from other people. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of that yeah. that two edged sword. Yeah. Ronnie, do you, you're a boss too, right? Do you have people who work for you? You know, yeah. I mean, it's interesting as I continue to hear Colleen's story over the years, we fit a lot when it comes to work ethic and sort of the general feeling of an immigrant family growing up, really feeling like putting shelter over your head and bread in your mouth were really important and don't be, you know... Um, don't overspend and mm-hmm. so forth. But both Colleen and I have been very lucky in our careers, lucky and also arduously working, and also, uh, I think, intelligently making decisions that were that actually afforded us a very good life. Um, I think that where we are a little bit different is my dad would always say to us, you are successful as if you can look at yourself in the mirror and, and feel good. 
And it, he was, he had that duplicity to him all the time. He, you know, he was feeding a lot of people, you know, a lot of uncles and aunts. He was putting food on the table for it. He was like the godfather in some sense. And yet simultaneously, even though that was his physical sort of in the world personality, he was actually incredibly artistic and philosophical. So you saw this really strange combination. And often I thought, what a contradiction. And it actually upset me a lot as I was growing up. But I feel success is, is, is truly eventually that. I mean, I don't disagree with calling at all. Like get your act together, put food on the table, take care of your kids, right. do like, let's take care of the survival aspect of things. Right. But <clears throat> I had another really important mentor that said, once you have those things taken care of, don't keep doing that. Then utilize your time for the creative, the artistic, you know, something that feeds a different aspect of you. Right. You might say, oh, that's what feeds your soul. But hey, Let's feed the body. Let's feed the mind. Let's feed the soul. Let's be human beings. We are the totality of that and way more than we can ever. So let's spend some time every day feeding all those aspects if we can afford it. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, just feeding your family is, is the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, contentment is looking at a well-made bed. It's like walking to a room and seeing a bed that's just made so perfectly. That's sort of a moment of, of contentment. And I feel like contentment doesn't necessarily spring from a uh, meditation practice or an asana practice. Mm-hmm. I've seen um, many people that are very content that don't have this kind of mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, being fully present in, in what you are doing um, can bring that sense of either emptiness or fulfillment. I'm not sure which way. I guess they're both one and the same. Um, that brings you to a place of not striving, not wanting something to be different, that place of nothing missing. Well, uh, one of the threads in the book is is surviving versus thriving. And, you know, just like what you're both saying, the survival aspect is taking care of your earth in terms of the heaven and earth. You have to take care of your ground properly. And we all learned how to survive. You know, hopefully some of us are struggling with it. And, you know, you see people who are like, on the edge of not, you know, what mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier. Um, but the premise is also once you kind of have your survival skills together and that you may need to undo some of them in order to thrive. And that's a sort of interesting thing. There's certain things you might need to let go that were part of your survival uh, engine that you might need to actually go back and revisit and release in order to thrive and move into a more yeah, creative area. Yeah, I don't think area. that they're different. I mean, my mother, um, I was brought up in a very Catholic family. Uh, father, 100% Italian. Mother, 100% Irish. <laughs> and <laughs> even though they they spent... No uh, Jews? What happened? No Jews. We had one Jewish family in our town, okay. and we were the only Italian family in Bluffton, Indiana. Um <laughs> But uh, even though we were busy trying to survive Mm -hmm. on low income with a lot of kids, um, the thriving from, especially my mother's uh, faith and and commitment, um, she always had a rosary bead in her hand, like always had rosary beads in her hand, went to mass every single day. I don't know what the hell she had to confess about, but she was constantly um, in the confessional, you know, where you go in and you 
you're on your knees and the priest opens up the thing and there's a screen and you just see his profile and then you start telling him all the bad things that that you've done and then he absolves you and tells you how many prayers and things that you have to say and then you have complete absolution. <laughs> so um, I feel like she was uh, having her soul fed and that was a very important aspect of the surviving. Um, so uh, I know the spiritual The dimension. spiritual dimension mm-hmm. of that and that's mm-hmm. sort of thriving and surviving. It's funny now the, the studio manager is as a reincarnation of your mom. <laughs> and I, I've never <laughs> not taught on a Sunday. Like literally never in my life, not taught on a Sunday. Uh-huh. Or in my last however many years as a yeah. teacher, 25. Do you, do you feel your Catholic roots are still part of who you are as a spiritual person? Oh, my God, person? so much. Uh-huh. So, 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 so much. Yes, absolutely. Um, from the chanting to the incense to the the homily, mm-hmm. the, the, the Dharma aspect of it, the Dharma talk aspect, to the kneeling and the standing and... The, well, did, I mean, obviously Catholicism has a high degree of ritual, which also, like, for example, exactly. Tibetan Buddhism does, and, and high yoga can have. And, and do you like that part? Is I that, love okay, that so part. Oh, mm-hmm. my gosh. Absolutely. I love that. It, it definitely, I was, you know, I went to confirmation, and um, I feel like I did have a, a connection to that. I mean, I still, to this day, for whatever reason, I love Mother Mary. Mm-hmm. I have her figures, you know, in different rooms in the house. I still say the Hail Mary. Um, well, the Kuan Yin in your studio, I couldn't decide if it was Kuan Yin or Mother Mary. <laughs> exactly. Is that partly with the shawl? Um, was that partly what drew you into that statue? Which one is that? Not the big one. The big one. The main oh, studio. okay. So anyway, so yeah, I, I, I bring it all in. I use mm-hmm. my Ganesha. <laughs> I, use my, uh, I, I use my Lakshmi, my Saraswati, yeah. my Patanjali. Um, you know, but I've, I'm definitely seeped in Catholicism as oh, well. Okay. Yeah. Rodney, how were you raised spiritually? What was your... I was uh, a Southern Baptist. Wow. In Oklahoma. Wow. Uh, baptized about 12, 13 years old. Uh, at that point, it really wasn't meaning much to me other than like, like the ritual of going through this thing. Um, it didn't really mean, oh, that I was going to be saved from hell or anything like that. It It didn't make any sense at that point. You know, and then other philosophical content around my teenage years started making some sense. But, you know, I mean, that's the whole, I mean, it's, again, very strange, for I think, for Colleen and I to even throw around the word, the word spiritual. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we have no idea what people mean by that. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, you know, when you have a talk, you should sort of define your terms. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of a a gateway in which to have a conversation which you're not saying he said, she said in some ways. Yeah. So I'd like to ask you, actually, what do you consider, consider spiritual? Well, uh, in, the, in, in the book and in general, I'm sort of using it as a um, defining a parameter that's, that's related to your essential well-being. In other words, it's not how successful you are. It's not how, uh, you know, how you're manifesting necessarily, but if you're sitting quietly by yourself, how do you feel? That to me is your spirit right there. It's uh, it's uh, the purest sort of essential part of your being. And, and you I, I, I hold that as the backbone of, of all the other activities. I think if you had to hierarchy, you know, create a hierarchy, that would be the that would be the pinnacle. So if you sit and you're constantly worrying when you're sitting, does that mean you're less of a well, spiritual it's, it's person? A, no, no, not at all. It means you can relate to yourself in that way 
as whatever's happening being part of your... Uh, but I, I think there would be a certain cultivation. Each of these areas is, is, is described as a cultivation. So in other words, you're, you're cultivating creativity, you're cultivating livelihood skills, you're cultivating spirituality. What does that mean? Well, how do you, it, it means how is your well-being? And you, you, nobody can tell you that. I don't think it has to do with how you were raised or what your church is or what your religion is. It's so sort of, there's this huge background. Yeah, background. Sometimes, basically, mm-hmm. people say it's like the screen behind the movie that's playing. Exactly. Okay? Yeah. And so you're describing this basic well-being. Maybe you don't need the well because that basically says there's a bad being. But maybe you're considering something outside of the realm of 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 duality so there's this screen and is that screen then basically being in touch with that screen <coughs> is in some ways in touch with the part of yourself that is not really of duality and the part of yourself that actually is already maybe pure joy yeah you know, obviously people formulate this so differently, but it seems to have an absolute and a relative quality, which is something that we talk about in Buddhism a lot. And the absolute quality is, of course, you can't distinguish it as like, I'm good as opposed to bad, for example. I'm, I'm feeling well as opposed to sick. But at a relative level, these things have tremendous meaning. Like if somebody's sick, you know, I saw your, your class yesterday and you're saying, uh, there was somebody who was saying to bring the energy all the way out through, so the prana goes through the body and out. And so, of course, all along the way, it's clearing up little uh, blockages of the nadis along the way, and the person is experiencing a kind of upgrade in their state of well-being at a relative level. And otherwise, we wouldn't be teaching these kind of details. So I but think there's a relative level to it. Is that, you know how you develop your craft... You've developed a number of crafts. Sometimes a person can become a craftsperson, but not an artist. And there's a juncture where I feel like there's some leap of faith of some kind that that there is a, a relative well-being. well-being. But there's also a leap in which you take that actually you're off the wheel of karma that, in fact, it's not relative at all. Well, that, and, and we call that unconditional or absolute. And they're, in, at least in the training that I had, they're considered completely interdependent. You can't separate them. Now, that's interesting. That, that's what we mean by non-dual. It's not one and not two, we say. So it's not that you've got to a non-dual space, so it's all one. It's integration of a sort of sense of totality and your relative situation. I think that's a whole other podcast because that be, <laughs> that's a subject that we can go on and on, yeah. and it's always the big debate. Yeah, and it's that. been the big date debate between like when I go to Maui with the Ramdas people, and mm-hmm. they sing it's all subek, all one, and the Buddhists show up and say you they know, never intersect. It's, yeah, no, they never they're interwoven, and in in Buddhist teachings, the interdependence of the two of, of absolute and relative is considered a third thing. Mm-hmm. You know, a third kaya, a third form. So yeah, we tell it prakriti and purusha. Yeah, and are they one or do they travel on separate parallel lines yeah. and never meet? Yeah, I mean, of course, it is a deep topic, but just well, at the simplest level, uh, you know, I mean it by just how somebody's 
feeling. And, and so basically a general sense of contentment, maybe not even happiness, but sort of a, yeah. a settling. Uh, and so in some ways, if you're, you're not actually cultivating the contentment, again, you're in some ways getting rid of the thing that's actually making you unaware of the contentment. Yeah, and I would say even there, there's two steps. One is to see it clearly. I mean, in terms of the meditation, like that we were talking about it yesterday, the first process, can you see your habitual patterns? Mm-hmm. And that gives a certain amount of space. And in, in our tradition, then there's a certain amount of purification. Like not, like, and purification means not um, repressing them or eliminating them, but actually sort of working with them in a way that's less um, imprisoning. Or judgmental. Yeah. So, the, so it's, you know, I think uh, from what I saw of your class, it seemed to be you're trying to free people up from a relative kind of constriction that they have. That's what I saw. Yeah, I mean, I see the relative constriction right now. One of the main tenets or pillars of the constriction is this Unfortunately, is having the idea that there is something other than you are enough. <laughs> and therefore, because, you know, I mean, the sick part of living in a capitalistic world is that it feels, whether it's intentional or not, we're always got a carrot in front of us. Sure. And so in some sense, yoga class turns into like, can I do this pose well? Yes, indeed. And it just is absurd. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking a lot about how desperation is mm. in some ways the um, the evil mm-hmm. that keeps one from being content, happy, joyful, grateful. Um, and we see it in uh, people that are very wealthy and that have everything and never have to worry another day in their life. Yeah. There's still this desperation for something. Mm-hmm. And maybe it goes back to what you said one of your chapters is just to be seen, to be validated, to be appreciated. Yeah. Um, and it just seems like there's this emptiness and there's this striving because something's missing. There's something I have to get. And if mm-hmm. I do it bigger, more, harder, faster, um, then I'm going to get there and then yeah. I'm going to be content and then I'm going to be happy. Um, but it seems like this sense of desperation for everyone, even our children. Mm. You know, that are, they're only in their 20s, their early 20s. There's still the sense of desperation that I'm not going to have enough, that I'm not enough, that I'm lacking, that everybody else is going to see that I'm lacking. And it's, um, it's really unfortunate because we're so blessed and lucky. And, uh, but there's something we're trying to get. How do you communicate that in, in yoga class, which is filled with people who are like, you can feel the striving towards the kind of perfect asana, the perfect form. And also that this may be like they've capped off their materialistic crusade and they've kind of like made it through that hoop. And now this is the final thing. Can I have the perfect yoga I don't think body? Anyone, I don't think anyone's past the materialistic realm. I don't think anyone that I know has capped that no. off. But, but I mean, it, it, even the billionaires, yeah. yeah. They're, but in terms of the, um, you know, what, what Trump used to call spiritual materialism. Sure. Mm-hmm. In other words, this is the final, or this is a, an additional thing I could accumulate and put into my basket of, of, of kind of accomplishment. I think what we try to do with those kind of people, there's one fella in our class in particular. He's hmm. um, he was a big-time litigator, and he's trying to retire right now. He's not doing a very good job of it. 
Uh, but he just pushes so hard. And he's got a difficult body to work with. He's already had one back surgery, and he's probably going to head for another one soon because he will not back up. Um, but one of the things that we try to do in our class is to get you to look at yourself in the way that you're approaching things. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so you mean even the way you're approaching the yoga the awesome class way. right now? Yeah, what yeah, would yeah, yeah, very yeah. Much. That's, uh-huh. you know, a big part of what we do is we try right. to get you to see. It's like, okay, you're in this pose, and now how are you in this pose? Mm-hmm. Like, is there any breath? Is there... Are you insisting? Are you mad at your body? Are you, mm-hmm. or is there any sense of ease, love, breath, kindness within this pose? And do you have to back up to get that? Or do you have to approach it um, maybe with a little more enthusiasm? Because mm-hmm. there's lethargy and there's um, the opposite of that. And do you ever leave time for them to discuss that in, within the class? Like, is there a any... verbal discussion? Yeah, just actually let them answer it when you throw that question only, out. Only really in teacher training. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because there's still also this mental structure that they come to class for the teacher. So a lot of times to hear someone else's story, the it's other just students like, get are you off. kidding? I don't want to yeah. listen to their story. <laughs> and, you know, they're going to ask some inane question that yeah. I don't want to listen to. So we don't find that even like you did last night, mm-hmm. opening it up to like, what was your experience? Mm-hmm. You know, you've been in, you've taught enough to know probably anything anyone's going to say is trying to show off you know or i, I hold a different view about it well anyways yeah. i mean you've been around a long time and and even though there may be a slightly different variation a yeah. slightly different snowflake yeah. a lot of times it's snow okay so anyways but we may have a little different view on that mm-hmm. but the the question comes to in some ways like you say, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. And if you start listening, you know, obviously in yoga, one of the big tenets of yoga is, is pranayama. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, for you also, one of the great meditations is to meditate on the breath, mm-hmm. whatever that means, right? Bring yourself back to the breath. The only fun part about controlling the breath in pranayama is that you start realizing that the more you control it, the more repressed it gets because the mind is controlling the breath. Mm -hmm. And so you, around the 10-year mark of serious study, you start realizing, wow, this is complicated. (coughs) So then the question is, can you actually have your, can you ask a simple question when someone's doing a pose that's hard? Mm -hmm. It's like, can you at least has some attention to the breath and what it's saying to you. Are you holding the breath? Are you trying to force the breath? Are you, is the breath moving throughout your body or only in certain parts of the body? So by understanding just that, you have a whole nother way to diagnose, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, your folly Mm -hmm. within the pose. And it depends on each person's individual body too. Some people have to put their foot on their head before they can even check back in to see, oh, how do I react when things are difficult? Mm-hmm. You know, some people are, you know, lucky in that they barely have to bend forward to to be able to uh, check in and see yeah. what they're uh, feeling at that moment. Yeah. But the irony, even when someone can do the perfect, perfect picture pose, yeah. right? Sure. In some ways, it's a bigger hurdle. They're more frustrated, too. It, it, it becomes a bigger hurdle than the person who can't do it. 
it, it you know thinking that you've succeeded is actually you know it's like the old saying right you find, the Buddha, find the Buddha on the road kill him or her mm-hmm. because that moment is a very dangerous moment mm-hmm. of thinking I have accomplished this right. that actually becomes almost the most insidious hurdle to get over sure so there's a lot of ways to move the class in a way you know so that they don't see the perfection of pose first of all it becomes really obvious to someone who's practiced there is no such thing then it becomes really obvious working with the body really strongly impermanence becomes a really familiar aspect it's like i balanced yesterday i can't balance today you know i did headstand well yesterday i can't do it today Oh, I did, yeah. you know, some of the arm balances when I was 35. I right. can't do them today at 60. It becomes a really uh, visceral understanding of impermanence that one might be able to get in a, you know, 30-day meditation. Well, and, and particularly in Vipassana, Vipassana practice, by noticing things arising and dissolving, you're inextricably led to an understanding of impermanence and even potentially sort of what would be called shunyatara emptiness because you see, well, wait a minute, there's no through line here. <laughs> there's, the, there's, exactly. no through, there's no continuity. There's no body holding the continuity. It's just, you know, so do you think that like just without even, you know, pointing that out that a, a, a good yoga practice could lead you to the intuitive understanding? I think it's that? not even about a good one. It's about, it's about putting enough time in mm-hmm. to have that epiphany. Mm-hmm. It's like, again, you might have a protege, like there's this chess player right now who's nine years old. He, he's getting pushed out of England, but England's begging to keep him because it's like England loves young chess players that have great potential, right? It's like, so what? He has potential. He's not a grandmaster. Mm-hmm. But I think that a lot of times it's actually the beginners that have this yes, experience more than I the agree. ones that have... I had a woman in my class uh, last week, and I think it was her second yoga class or something. And then <laughs> after class, we did you know, a little asana, an asana class and then uh, like a 10-minute meditation at the end. And she came up, she goes, that was the weirdest thing. She, she used the word elevate. She's like, I felt like I was like elevating at the end. I was like, you mean levitating? She's <laughs> like, yeah, 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 that. Mm. You know, so she was able to sort of get rid of all of her preconceptions of what it's supposed to lead to. Right. Yeah. And she just had like this crazy Sensation. experience that she never even knew was there, was even possible. Yeah. Um, and and what did you say to her? I just laughed. Uh-huh. I yeah. told her that, you know, she meant levitating, not elevating probably, <laughs> but elevating is sort of cool too. I mean, what's um, the difference between you as a 40-year meditation practitioner to when you were a beginner? Well, of course, the only location for me thinking about me as a beginner is my own memory, which is happening now. So I'm not even sure if it ever existed, if you really want another truth. But if you fabricate it. If I go there, I think of myself as kind of, I have to kind of like watch in a movie David Nickturn at the age of 20, uh, 28 or whatever. And I like that guy. That's interesting, the thing that comes in. And I've seen some pictures lately because we just did a concert in Central Park, which was the music of the 60s. So a lot of John Sebastian was there singing Hot Town Summer in the City. And Melanie was there and Maria Mulder was there. And so I saw a lot of these people who I'd seen in their 
in that time That's now. Hilarious. And it was kind of, as you know, that can be shocking and, and <laughs> horrifying. Saw, saw, yeah, we like, saw the Marshall Tucker band recently. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And you go, <laughs> you know, you have to have a lot of... A lot of um, oh, I shouldn't have said that, unless oh, you're going to edit it. But, yeah. you know, it's interesting. Yeah, no, they can take, they yeah. can take it. But so the point is how, uh, you know, since you're throwing at me, I had the feeling of going, you know, I like that guy. He was creative. Um, he was friendly to people. Um, he was involved in some very exciting times. And uh, particularly, first memory comes going back and forth between playing in a band with Jerry Garcia and mm-hmm. going to see Trunk Rinpoche in Colorado. Unbelievable. You played with Jerry Garcia? I had a, a, a bluegrass band with him. But all I, right, I literally right. go just, from that. Okay, now you have my, the meditation thing, whatever. Yeah. But you <laughs> played with Jerry Garcia. Yeah. You, you've got yeah. my you've yeah. got my respect now. Yeah, thank you. No, I have, you have, I'm kidding. But, but yeah, that's big. That's uh, big. <laughs> you, you know, going back and forth between those two environments was like, you know, a very heightened creative time. What about Rinpoche? I mean, we only know him tangentially through his writings and through yeah. some of his other teachers. He was an epiphany for you. Let's see if I can find the right uh, adjective. Um, at this point, I can't really separate him from my own sense of the world. They're 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 merged in some way. So, um, but at the time, he he appeared as a kind of. Uh, totally inspiring figure and we, I've been talking about this a lot with some of the older students because we're constantly updating and reviewing what's gone on since then but he was um, a tremendous creative force he was so creative he was so spontaneous he was so well trained that was something I really appreciated um, and it was fun that's something people can't mm. really wrap their minds around anymore uh, it was really fun and it really was the same ethos as going and playing, opening a Grateful wow. Dead concert with Jerry Garcia. It didn't feel that different. It felt like this is the greatest time on earth here. Were there drugs involved? With Trump mm-hmm. Very occasionally. I mean, he was kind of open. I think the thing that might have been different about him than a lot of the people then and since is there was nothing hidden at all about how mm-hmm. he lived. Um, and he was... he was, with Jerry Garcia, there definitely was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, I think <laughs> <laughs> a consistent factor weaving back. <laughs> you don't have to answer yeah, that. And, and people don't really understand <laughs> the times. Where if you look at that time through the lens of, of 2018, it's it's going to be it's going to be a kind of a, a you know a mismatch. But yeah, I have I have a feeling of like having uh, that 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 period of time was a creative and exalted time, and I I. Like, I never went to Tibet. I never went to India. It's, I met all the greatest Tibetan Buddhist masters of the 20th century. They, they came here, and we hosted them. So these three things in your book, spirituality, making a buck, and creativity. And making a buck is livelihood and practicality. Right, sure, and, you know, sure. I'm, just, I'm being yeah. playful with it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's... Uh, but do they... I mean, and for us, I don't think they represent any contradiction or conflict uh and uh other than time do you have mm-hmm. time to do either one of them sure, well time's time a factor. you know right. but they don't it's never been like oh you have to like you know be a starving artist to be a great creative voice in the world right. or you have to not make any money to be a great yogi you know 
again, attachment is not whether it's happening or not, really. Attachment is sort of your attitude towards mm-hmm. it. Whether you and, and I know Colleen, she likes certain things. We both like certain things. I love clothes. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go to confession. And, and, and <laughs> you know, she loves aesthetics. Yeah, I love <clears throat> That's partly why we're living in Sag Harbor. It's really mm-hmm. beautiful out mm-hmm. here, you know. Uh, she loves this perspective of nature and this perspective of being a human being. I also know that she could do without it. Mm-hmm. That's true. You I don't know, know if I could do without some of my shoes, but <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. But but that you know, so it's it's not that she has to prove it by living like Mother Teresa in Calcutta mm-hmm. while she works with the poor. You know, though that would be interesting too. That would be an interesting experiment. Well, to I did see. work with Mother Teresa yes. in India. Well, there you go. There you go. There you have it. I had two dresses, and I don't think I don't know if I've ever been happier. I washed one out each night, and then that's just, that's profound. Yeah, it was amazing. I yeah. shaved my hair. My you my, hadn't my, met me, so I you weren't actually as happy as you are now. But I mean, you can imagine my hair was sort of my <laughs> yes. signature. Uh-huh. Um, but I shaved it off and went and, uh-huh. and worked with the poorest of the poor. Um, it was beautiful, but I I still have that dress hanging in my closet amongst probably a hundred other ones. Yeah. But I will say another thing about making a buck, and that is, I remember when I was a dancer, and uh, people just told me, well, even if you have the capacity, don't become a professional dancer. Don't mix your art sure. with your finances. Yeah. And, you know, there's something to be said about that, regardless of whether you can do it or not. And how much time you have. You know, it'd be interesting to be a monk in Bhutan, and get government subsidies. Like, literally, in Germany, they gave government subsidies to dancers, right? Yeah. They were... Yeah. The government was supporting the arts. Yeah. Very interesting. And 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 I have to say, it would be interesting for some of the artists I know to not have to worry about making money. Mm. Well, it, Charles it, Ives, you familiar with Charles yes, Ives? Yes, of course. He was sold Incredible. insurance. So that, and he was successful at it, so that he wouldn't have to sell his music. It was a deliberate choice. So, and one of the great composers of our century. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's. I I'm not proposing only one solution to this, but oh no. But what's interesting about both of you is you're saying there's a kind of uh, a through line, and there's no inherent contradiction in terms of your understanding of these, which is makes you manifestors from the point of view of this uh, particular right. formulation, and so it's you know, it, from other people's point of view, they'll look at you and go, "How did you do all that?" How did you study yoga? How did you make a good livelihood out of it? And how did you fulfill yourself creatively? So that's that's kind of, you know, it's a lot of the books addressed to people who are aspiring in, in one of those areas or to, to connect the, the dots. The problem with the how-to book at all, yeah, I find, is that you also give someone the idea it can happen mm-hmm. and that they're in control of it happening. <laughs> and as you, I think, well know mm-hmm. that not everything's in our control. And so... You know, a lot of people are thinking all the time, if I just did this, sure. if I just tweak this a little bit over here, then I could be the spiritual, creative uh, millionaire that I dream of. And and that's the that's one of the main pet peeves I have yeah. with all of this work. Yes. It's yeah. like it makes people not actually think they're enough. Yeah. And so your foundation is on the shakiness of becoming. Yeah, that's a problem with goal oriented. I mean, it's like, you know, 
keep that in your mind. Put it on your vision board. This oh, is the God. goal. This is the end game. You can do it. Go, go to the top of the mountain and then just keep going. And, sure. You know, that's what we see in all the inspirations on Instagram right now. It's yeah. like, you can get there, you know, put your, the lover that you want, just write down all the attributes yeah. and put it under your pillow and you're going to get that lover. And, and then duck like, when she shows up. But, yeah. um, you know, that I, I appreciate that, uh, uh, you know, caveat of, of the, the potential of this being something that only adds to people's, um, you know, uh, neurotic sense of ambition and so forth. But, the flip side is that I work with a lot of people. They're missing something in their toolbox mm. that can easily be put there, like learning how to um, actually understand cash flow if you're running a business. There's oh, people absolutely. who don't even know what that word means, cash flow. So this is very practical. And the main thing is that the vision itself, uh, the heaven principle, is coming from the unfabricated realm, and you don't have any control of it. So you, the instructions is just, just kind of open to it, and then you have some sense of manifesting that. And along the way, you're adjusting, you're adapting. Um, and I think this is for people who are facing obstacles that they keep bumping into over and over again, whether in, the, whether in their physical realm, their spiritual realm, or their creativity. Um, you know, a, a great friend of mine just passed away who was a phenomenal guitar player, like one of the all-time greats. But he did not have the recognition that he deserved, I feel. And... and um, there was some misapprehension about the business aspect of, of what you, you are doing this for a living. You, 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 you are great at it. Maybe if he's content with that, that's fine. I can think of another guitar player who was the greatest jazz player that nobody ever heard of, but it didn't matter. Didn't matter. Mm. But this was somebody who could have been, you know, really appreciated for what his gift was. I feel like they just don't get out of their own way. Yeah. But you know what? The, that's, that's generally, mm. you know. The irony is this, though. And, and this is what I've noticed in teaching a lot, and, yeah. and that is the things, for instance, my musician friend who can, you know, you met the, him, the, the violinist, violin, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of times he'll say, can you hear that, Rodney? And I'm like, actually, I can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't hear that. I, I actually, you know, and so what seems so ridiculously simple to him yeah. in plain sight couldn't be more hidden for me. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we can understand that when it comes to extremes. Like, there's this nine-year-old chess player, right? There's not a lot of nine-year-olds that have that capacity. Mm -hmm. There's just not. And we can accept that. Mm -hmm. But you might have a hard time accepting that, oh, my guitar player, he actually could have been famous. Or he could have had a lot more money in the bank. Or appreciated. If, That's or what. appreciated. If yeah. he just would have tweaked this little... But sometimes we don't realize... That tweaking that is so obvious to you yeah. is actually not doable to him. Absolutely. And, 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 and we think it's a little hurdle. It looks like a little hurdle. If I can tell, I'm, I'm working with this one guy right now. I'm like, I promise you, your big hurdle is punctuality. <laughs> Seems easy, right? Like, right. wow, I got to be there at, at 10 o'clock. Let's plan to be there at 10 till 10. Yeah. There's enough clocks in the in the in the world to figure out probably that you can be there at ten till ten. Mm -hmm. I, I I promise you, it's going to be a huge hurdle for him. Yeah. But he can do it. No, I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He can do it. So it's kind of a root habit. See, that's yeah. the mm -hmm. thing. What I'm saying. No, yeah. I'm what I'm saying to us right now mm -hmm. is that things that seem so obvious, like yeah. being on time, 
Okay. Like everybody says, come on, it's, it's just, it's simple addition. You can do it. But what's keeping them from doing it can have 10,000 lifetimes of karma. <laughs> Not to give them an they excuse. They were late for all 10,000 lives. No, what I'm saying is... <laughs> 10 months it's, every time. It may be not as simple as what sure. we think it is. Oh, That's absolutely. All. Oh, they and can call an Uber to come pick them up 20 minutes before class every day I would and have think, them stand I would think that was the case. No, you're both I think there are you're examples both, You're both right. You're both right. Yeah. I mean, this is... And, and appreciate you kind of issuing this uh, caveat, a warning of like... And, my hope for the book is that it's not like just, okay, you can just trick your way out of this thing and get it right and get it to feel right and look right. Uh, so ultimately, you know, the guy who's late, that is a spiritual problem. That's actually not a business problem. And that's one of the things I'm saying is look at the roots of what's happening. Mm. And the guy who's a billionaire who's not satisfied with his livelihood is a spiritual problem, just the way I would talk about it. And the person who's bored at work, that's a creative problem. So I'm just really saying that there's a you know, through line with these three things, and they're not really separate, which is, you know, kind mm-hmm. of... Um, but, you know, I saw, like yesterday, when you make adjustments on people, there is something there that can be tweaked. It could be tweaked at that moment with an outside point of view. Can they tweak it at home? Can they retweak it at home with even that imprint of that suggestion? Mm-hmm. <coughs> Look, I don't want to paint a, a pessimistic picture because I'm ultimately actually a, a ridiculous optimist. <laughs> uh, it's just that over this many years of teaching, this yeah. much, I, I don't, I see the shifts of perspective uh, relatively small. I mean, sometimes, too, it's just a matter of um, someone else coming and saying the exact same thing in a different Mm -hmm. way. And suddenly it's like the number of times Rodney and I have said, you know, the back leg of the standing pose, you have to keep that groin released deep, wide, soft. And, I mean, literally sometimes for 15, 20 years we'll tell them that. And then another teacher will show up for a day and they'd be Mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, did you hear that instruction? And we're like... Yeah, we've been mm-hmm. saying that for 20 years. So I think that you can come at it, um, that somebody can hear it in a different way at a different time. Yeah. Um, and or the, the 20 times in. you have said it may have been exactly what? The foundation in which The foundation of which the, the breakthrough happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then some people just are never going to feel they're growing, no matter how many times sure. you go and you tweak it and you karate chop and you have them hold their hip and you roll it down. And no matter how many different ways you say it, they're just never going to get there. Yeah. So. so but if, I think fundamentally, yeah. and, and Colleen's really been pitching this in her mm-hmm. book. In her? In her book. Can we um, say the title? That's called Yoga for Life. Yoga for Life, Colleen Seidman. And one of the fundamental... Um, sort of, if you will, little um, gems that come out of that book is know you're enough. Uh-huh. See, I think, I think what's creating a lack of intelligence for real, for real shifting of that internal space we're talking about is that people are actually desperate. Mm-hmm. Back to that. Yeah. 
People are panicking, they're anxious, they're exhausted, and they're depressed. And because of that, um, there is this unbelievable foundation of nervousness, of panic. I'm going to call it just straight out panic. That doesn't allow anything actually to be observed. Mm -hmm. So So it obstructs awareness. It obstructs awareness. And therefore, how do you get, how do you really solve that as a, as a Rubik's cube? How do you solve that Rubik's cube and line up all the colors? Sure. I think part of it is comparing. Well, exactly. Well, that's, that's, that's the problem with, how-to books Mm -hmm. is a little bit, they perpetuate the idea that you're not enough Uh because they're first of all, trying to sell a book, Mm -hmm. you know, you're trying to sell something to someone partly because it's like, it also creates a hierarchy of the teacher. of like, I have something that you don't have and I'm going to teach you how to get there. Mm -hmm. So the whole premise, sometimes it sets up a, a place of more panic. That's so, Randy, why don't you write a new book called How to Not? How to Not. That's a good, that's a great title. <laughs> well, it's just going to be empty. <laughs> just no it's already out. written. Yeah, blank pages. Yeah, our uh, daughter called us yesterday. She's 22, and she graduated last year from UC Santa Barbara, did wonderfully in school, has a degree in environmental science and marine biology, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And she's 22, and she's teaching sailing. And she's really embarrassed about that because all of her other friends have careers and jobs and, right? and they're, mm-hmm. they're on some trajectory. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I'm really embarrassed. And people, you know, my, mm-hmm. my uh, college mates asked me what I'm doing. She's like, I'm teaching sailing. And she just feels really bad about herself because that's what she's doing. And it doesn't feel like it's um, something that should, she should be doing with the education she has, with um, the peers that, that she's with, which are all, you know, very um, goal-oriented. Yeah. And that's also, a, a, I think, a, a problem. Prob- so what advice did you give her? Um, I told her to enjoy this part of life, and they're jealous of you, too. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and she's, she's my daughter. She's always going to make money. Like She's going to mm-hmm. do whatever she mm-hmm. needs to do to fulfill that aspect, aspect of her life. And you don't need to know what you want to do at 22. You know? What if that is what she wants to do? It just teach sailing, but she's never going to feel like it's enough. Why not? Because she has in her mind that that's not success. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I'm talking about is you define success on your own terms. Mm-hmm. And you have, to, you have to explore the influence of your family and your mm-hmm. culture to, to come to that. But that's, uh, that's, that's, I like that. And it actually, it's one of the teachings that Ramanan Patel really put on. He says... <laughs> We're in this uh, workshop for trauma, actually, sexual trauma. And he said, um, how are you judging yourself, you know, by other people's measure, right? He said, well, that's interesting. People don't know you very well. Who spends all the, <laughs> who spends 24-7 mm-hmm. inside your head? Mm-hmm. Only you. Yeah. And you don't even know yourself very well. And yet you're actually basing other people's opinions as if they were some accurate criteria of, uh, of, of who you are. I'm calling that externally rotated. Externally <laughs> rotated, yeah. You were externally yeah. rotated. And yet, you know, also in spiritual practice, part of the problem is that we also have an internal rotation that actually is also incredibly judgmental and condescending. Yeah, it's more critical but than it's the an external. Import. It's, it's an important. 
But, you know, maybe neither one of those is the screen. Neither one of those is the screen. So the problem is fixating on neither one of those. Absolutely. So then one might have to ask, you know, that's your propensity mm -hmm. for whatever reason, whether it's genetic or whether it's learned behavior or whether it's 10,000 lifetimes, pick your, pick your choice or all of the above. Yeah. And then do we even have the wisdom as a teacher to begin to like fine tune something? So it's like all of a sudden the screen is seen. If you, if you didn't think the person has the capacity to see the screen on their own, probably you could never tweak it. So, you know, the great teachers I work with didn't do that much, actually. Didn't do that much. No. That's so interesting. So, so wonderful to talk to both of yes. you about this. You what, too. A, what a joy. Thank you. And um, any, any closing, you know, uh, homilies for the, the amassed um, acolytes that are going to be listening to this? Practice relaxation. Okay. This there is... ain't nothing missing. No, you're enough. Okay. All right, Ronnie and Colleen, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Can't wait to read the book. Okay. I know. You're really, I'm telling you, and she knows that I hardly ever talk about anyone's book like I've talked about or yours. Or anything, unless yeah. he really believes in it. There's, there's a few books that I've read that I, I put at a very high level, but yours is, I found it stunning. Actually. Well, that's deep, deeply uh, appreciated, and thank you so much. Yeah. So I'm going to just close off, and then um, uh, hopefully we get a chance to talk again like this another time. Great. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest? Are you holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Don't keep it all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.